0: Thanks, Ron. Thanks, team. It's been, um, it's been quite the journey, uh, literally, from Littleton to here, but then also just what God's been doing, I know, for you guys and for us as well. And so we're excited about the opportunity to be in LaGrange. I grew up in Victoria, not too far from here. My wife grew up in Palestine, so we know what we're anticipating with the humidity and the heat. We're adjusting. We're acclimating ourselves here, but we're excited about what God has in store. So look forward to being with you. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Ezra chapter 8. We're going to ask the question, whose are you? Whose are you? We live in a culture that lives on labels. We call ourselves black and white, boy and girl, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, or neither. And those labels have a tendency to Give us value. They dictate who we are and how we value ourselves, and those are the perceptions by which we live life. I have value because I'm a boy. I have value because I have maybe some wealth. I have some value because I pretend that I'm smart. I have value because I have great hair. We have those labels that people have given us or our parents have given us, wherever they've come from, they have a tendency over time to give us value and to also give us our worth. But as a follower of Jesus, that's the wrong mirror to live life and to get value from. As a follower of Jesus, the mirror that we're to receive value and to live life out of is the mirror of God's word. In James chapter one, it even says to to live life as you hear God's word, to allow it to reflect back to you what you're seeing and how you're seeing Jesus transform your heart and your life. As a matter of fact, James even says, you know, to be doers of the word, and as a part of that process, is that as we study God's word, that we literally that we bend over, that we stoop over, and what he means by that is in the old days, whenever they would have mirrors, it was more like a coffee table, so something like this. Beautiful table here. You would stoop over and inspect yourself with great intensity. You would have to really study. So ladies, before you went out on the day, you would have to do this inspection. So I don't know if this happens at your house, men, but there's an inspection process before I go outside. You guys have that? Because there are days that I've gone out and I'm going to the store or I'm going somewhere and I happen to walk, make the mistake of walking past Becky and I get that, Mm -mm. Mm -mm, mm mm-mm, 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 And I know immediately that what I'm wearing is not going to surpass. It's not going to pass the test. And you can just see the fingers snapping. Mm -mm, Honey child, you're representing me. You are not going out in that. I mean, I even had one of my favorite shirts. It was a polo, Ralph Lauren polo. It was purple. It was gorgeous. I'd had it about 10 years, and it was just getting broken in, guys. I mean, it was just about to be the right. I mean, it, it had colors, different colors of purples. I mean, it was Joseph's coat. I mean, we were enjoying. I mean, I would mow the yard in it. I could do everything in it. And one day, I went to go find that thing, and it was gone. And I searched over there and over here. I mean, I was looking everywhere. And finally, I asked the question, Becky, where is my shirt? I have no idea. Was her response? And immediately, I knew she was lying because she had seen that shirt way too many times and it had not passed inspection, and so she decided that thing was gone. Listen, we live life through a mirror. And many times that mirror is how people see us and perceive us, but the mirror for us as followers of Jesus is God's Word. And He says for us to bend over, to stoop down, and to look intently into His Word and to see the reflection that's coming back and that over time that that reflection should more, look more and more like Jesus. And it's not about behavior modification, it's about not not doing this and not, not doing that and don't do this and don't do that. But it's truly about God transforming your heart that you begin to understand over time that those things, they may have had value before, but now there's less value in them because of the value that you have in your relationship with Jesus Christ and your desire to see your neighbors come to know Him. And that we make decisions not about behavior modification, but about following who Jesus is and the great value that he brings to our life. Where do you get your value? Whose are you? And Ezra, this is a story of a man who's been in Babylonian captivity for a long time. And so this is the generation that's about to begin the trek back to Jerusalem, back to Israel begin to to set down roots again after they've been. And so Ezra had gone to the king and he said, Hey, listen, I I know you've given us freedom to go back, and so I want to be leading a team of people back. And so Ezra begins that journey. And as he's beginning that journey, they get to a place where there's a river, kind of like the Colorado River, and they stop. And they see that there's a journey ahead, but this is a great time for them just to kind of stop and take an assessment and catch their breath. Because they understand that there's a journey, a long journey, difficult journey ahead. So Ezra just stops, kind of catches their breath, and everybody begins to just kind of talk and fellowship for a little bit, have that one last great meal together before the great journey begins. And so as Ezra's doing that, as the team is doing that, Ezra just begins to kind of take a head count and say, who's here? Who's decided they want to go back to Jerusalem and, and build the temple and begin to build the city? Because you can imagine this place is in ruins, and so to to kind of count the cost for what it looks like to go on this journey. This is a, a difficult journey, but then also when they get there, it's going to be hard work. And so a lot of people, even though they're in captivity, they're comfortable with where they're at. But these people had counted the cost and said, Whose am I? And they wanted to take the journey. And so here they are, they're gathered together, and through the count of heads and kind of getting an assessment of who's there, they realized that there were some priests. So if you're going to be building a church, if you're going to be building a temple, you need some priests. So there's some priests that were there. They also realized that there was a direct descendant of King David. So you know a little bit of your Bible prophecy. You know that the descendant of David is, is huge throughout the Old Testament, obviously the New Testament. So a, a direct descendant of David is a part of this group that's going back. And also there was a remnant of all 12 of the tribes, all, a remnant of all 12 of the families that are in, as a part of that group as well. So as Ezra is here and they're in this process of making this great journey together, they've kind of stopped and all of a sudden they realize, hey, we've got priests, we can set up church, we've got a, a direct descendant of David, we've got the lineage that's happening, we know that we need that and we also understand that we're going um, to need the remnant of the twelve. And so everybody's there and so this is, the excitement is happening. The journey is ahead and they're excited. But one of the things that they realize is they're about to take this journey that there's a group of people that are missing. And the group are the Levites. And the Levites are extremely important to the temple work because those are the, the deacons, the servants, those that are working hard. And there's those priests, they're preaching, but what do they do during the week? They don't do anything except on Sunday come up and preach, right? And so somebody's got to be doing something during the week and those are the Levites. So they, Ezra realizes, hey, they're not around. And so imagine... Ezra says, hey, listen, we can't go back and we can't establish what we need to establish without having the Levites. And so he sends some of the leaders that are part of his group, he sends them back into town and they spend a week. And after about a week, the Levites, about 40 Levites and 220 other temple workers join the group. And so now they realize, hey, we can, we're ready to take the journey together. So you can imagine the excitement that's been building at this camp. They're based on the Colorado River, and the camp begins to grow. And then here comes another 260 to 300 people and all that. And just the enthusiasm that builds of, hey, God's got some great stuff for us. We're going to go back to the homeland, and we're going to reestablish a temple. We're going we're to build this house, and we're going to do this. And this guy's going to have a lumber yard. And so just the great excitement of what's ahead. And then all of a sudden, Ezra, as the great leader as he is, he looks out and he sees the path that's ahead. And all of a sudden, what's he doing? A great leader begins to hear the rumors begins to hear things is one of the things about the path that they're about to take is that path is extremely dangerous. It's known as a place where there have been murders. It's known as a place where people have been robbed and people have bad things have happened. And so he's hearing rumors Hey, that stuff is happening. And so Ezra, being a great leader, had gone to the king and he said, hey, king, I feel like God's calling me to lead my people back to the homeland and to reestablish the temple. And we're excited about what God's going to be doing and the king, being a very practical king, says, well, Ezra, I, you know the road. You know the road that you've got to journey, and that road is a very difficult road. Do you, would you like my help? Would you like me to send some of my military, some of my guys that, can, that are strong and can handle this? And Ezra, being the smart, wise man that he is, says, I got it. I got it. Because he was in a place of comfort. He was excited about what God had called him to do, and he said, listen, king, We've got it. My God is a great God. And if my God has called me to do this, I do not need your help. I am ready to go. And so here they are. In the comfort he could say that to the king, but now he's standing on the precipice of the river and he sees the bridge and he's about to cross and he can see the path, and he can maybe even see some of the people waiting out there, and he's hearing the rumors, and so all of a sudden he gets the big butt syndrome. Y'all know what the big butt syndrome is? That is the buh but bu- 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 but God because in the comfort of our homes, and the comfort, we're able to, to make great claims. But then we really count the cost and we really see where God's taken us. And we understand that it's, it's not going to be comfortable. That it's not going to be easy. That it may cost us our life. It may cost us our home. It may cost us who we think we are. In that moment, here's Ezra and he's looking out and he's like, God, but blah, blah, blah. And he begins to count the cost. Whose are you. In those moments, when you're standing on the precipice of something that God's called you to do, and you begin to truly count the cost, when you begin to truly see the danger, begin to truly hear the rumors of what's going on, and you begin to truly understand what it is ahead of you. In those moments, stop. I'm going to say, "Who's am I? I'm no longer a slave." The perceptions of the world that they have upon me don't matter anymore because I'm a child of God and He's called me to do this. And if He's called me to do it, we're going to go do it. So that's where Ezra is at. He had stopped and the, the crowd had grown and the crowd was ready to go, but Ezra, the leader, seems a little hesitant. I'm like, yeah, I know I got you to this place, but... And so they stop for a moment. What do they do? In Ezra chapter 8, verses 21-23, through 23, it says this, There by the Havoc Canal... I proclaimed to fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and for our children with all of our possessions. We're ashamed to ask the King for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from our enemies on the road because we have told the King the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to Him, but His great anger is against all who forsake Him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. What makes you nervous? What makes you nervous? What makes you begin to not trust God? And those moments when you realize that you're not going to have the job that you've had and so your finances are going to be a little different. When you realize that your friends are not really your friends and the perceptions of who you thought you were are not true. That you thought that you had good grades and all of a sudden you made a B ever happen all these different things you have a job you have a social status you have money what is it that you trust in that sometimes is just pulled and yanked away from you and all of a sudden you begin to wonder and worry worry is a lack of trust worry in those moments is a lack of trust what are you relying on in that moment Ezra have relied on the confidence that God had called him and he stood there at that moment of a precipice of looking over the river and of a great challenge and a road ahead and he stops. And he asked the question, whose am I? Whose are you? God's calling some of you guys to do some incredible things. And you've kind of gotten to that place and you're like, yeah, I want to do it. And now you're at the precipice of going and you have the big butt syndrome and you're like, but God, I don't know. So this morning I want to encourage you, if God's challenging you to do something and you're on the precipice of something great, stop and take account and ask the question, whose am I? And allow God to speak truth to you. Pray, seek his face, to let him know that God has great things for you. Because he loves you and you're his child and God does not make any junk. God does not make mistakes with any of us. Whenever he makes us, we are one of a kind. There are no clearance sales with God. There is not a thrift stop. We went to Second Chance. It's a great place. But God does not sell us at at thrift stores. Whenever He made you, He said this is a -a one-of-a-kind thing and you are of a great value. In Ephesians chapter 2, whenever it talks about us being a great masterpiece, it means that God has literally woven us together and even on the backside sometimes it looks like a mess and it feels like a mess. On the other side, God is looking at the masterpiece and saying, I have done a great job with you. And too many times we're peeking on the backside of the rug and we see the mess. But God's saying, listen, look at the mirror. Allow yourself to see who I've created and who I'm making you into. You are a masterpiece. Ezra was a little confident early on. He, he was excited about that. And listen, as I stand here today with you, I'm excited about the opportunities. We're standing on the precipice of the Colorado River and we have some great things. And I know you're excited about some great things. It's going to be real easy for me to go, but, 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 because it's not easy being a pastor of anybody. I'm a great pastor to myself, and I have a great relationship with myself, but I invited my wife in, and you know what? It gets messy sometimes, because I'm perfect, but I invited her in, and I have to work with her imperfections, and it's a little difficult sometimes. You can laugh at that. It's okay. She'll beat me later. But his confidence was impacted by the danger that was ahead. It reminds me of Peter. Peter was asked the question, Who do you guys think I am? And Peter responded, You're the Messiah. In a great place of comfort, they're around the campfire, and I'm sure this is kind of what I imagine. They're around a the campfire, and they're having chili and fish. And Jesus says, Hey, you know, we're, we've been together for a little bit. Who, who, do, who do people say I am? And Peter says, You are the Messiah he was brash he was confident he was that guy that's out front he's like yes that is who I am but don't tell anybody so then that moment comes whenever Peter's Jesus is getting ready to be hung and everything's kind of going down and Peter stands in the midst and a little girl walks up to him and says hey didn't you used to hang out with Jesus no 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 as you know the story, three times Peter denied Jesus. And so that's imagine the great disappointment that whenever he was face to face in the comfort of Jesus having fish and chili, he was like, you are the Messiah. And then a little girl comes up and says, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? I don't know that guy. And what great embarrassment that would have brought him. And so we see later on that Peter is again having fish and he's there with Jesus and they're having this conversation and Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, yeah, you know I am. You know I do. Jesus says, hey, let's go throw the football. Let's go to the Frisbee. We're on the beach. And so they're, they're hanging out and they're having a good time and they're enjoying this. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, I know a little bit earlier at dinner, you said you love me. Do you, do you really love me? Peter's like, yeah, Jesus, you know I love you. Why, why are you asking me this? He's like, Jesus, I'm just, I'm just asking. I'm just asking. A little bit later on, they're around the campfire having hot chocolate seeming kubaya. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you really love me? And I think in that moment Peter understood that Jesus wasn't just asking, Do you love me? but he was saying to him, Listen, my grace is sufficient as you look through the mirror and that you made this great claim that you said I was the Messiah and even a little girl walks up and you unclaimed me. I want you to know that I don't make junk and I don't make mistakes and that you are chosen by me and I have great plans for you. I have great desires to use you, Peter. Do not back away from the plan that I have for you that the safest place that God has for us may not seem like the safest place in the world. Romans 8, 28 tells us that God loves us and that for those who love him, he's going to take care of us. And so for some of you, God may be calling you to what seemingly seems like the most dangerous place in the world, but if God has called you there and you've counted the cost, it's going to lead you down a dangerous path and he's going to walk with you. The question is, whose are you? Whose are you? Listen, as a church family, you stand on the precipice. There's going to be a path that God's leading us. Whether we're part of that or not, I believe that maybe this is where God's calling us to be, and we're excited about that opportunity. And there's going to be some things that we're going to do together that may seem dangerous to other people. But the body of 2nd LaGrange is unique. unique. It's not First Baptist LaGrange, it's not the remnant, it's not anybody else. And so God's got a unique vision and a unique mission for us, and we're going to charge it, and we're going to go for it, and we're going to do things. And I'm excited about that. And it's going to be dangerous. And there's going to be rumors upon rumors upon rumors of, hey, if you hearing what they're doing over there? And we're going to say, yes, God is moving. Because God has called us to a place to do something. And we're going to change the world and it's going to start right here. It's going to centrifuge out. That was the exciting part for Ezra because he knew that God had moved and they were excited about not just being comfortable at where they'd been, but to go back to a place where there was hard work. And listen, to be a disciple of Jesus is hard work. And I'm not scared of it. And there's going to be moments as your pastor, there's going to be moments as disciples of Jesus that we're going to look at each other and we're going to go, what in the world are you thinking? And listen, healthy conflict is good. We can grow through that. Okay? I am not the Savior. I'm Chris. Together on a journey to lead people to the Savior. LaGrange, there are people today, this morning, that are not in a place of worship, that need to be in a place of worship. There are people in Fayette County that are not in a place of worship, that need to be in a place of worship. If you call me as your pastor, one of the things we're going to talk about and you're going to hear from me is, how are you loving your neighbor? Do you know your neighbor's name? How are you praying for him? What are you doing? Because listen, it's easy to come here on Sunday. And to not know your neighbor's name. And one of the first things you can begin to do is begin to pray for them. Know their name so you can begin to pray for them. As that begins to happen, your heart's going to begin to melt and you're going to to want to mow the yard for them. You may not want to mow your own yard, but you're going to want to mow their yard. It's miraculous. You may not want to cook for yourself, but you're going to want to cook for them. Why? Because your heart and your mind and your soul is not about you, but it's about them knowing and growing in the relationship with Jesus Christ. Whose are you? More than a member of Second Baptist, you're his. And God's got us on a a place where we're about to take a great journey, I believe. And there's going to be some difficult things. But I'm excited. And hopefully you are as well. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray this morning that everyone in this room knows who they belong to. And Father, if there's a shadow of a doubt that they are not yours, that you work in their heart and their soul and their mind this morning. And Father, maybe there are those here this morning that have struggled with their image. And maybe they find themselves by their work. Define themselves by their athletic success, their academic success. Define them by their house, their car, whatever it is, whatever image they've tried to portray to the world so that people would receive them and accept them. Father, I pray this morning that their hearts will be convicted that they understand that they have great value to you and that you've already accepted them. You've already brought them in. They are a child of God. They've been redeemed. They've been bought out of slavery. Father, I look forward to the days ahead. I pray that today is just the beginning of great things, that there's a path ahead. It's going to be dangerous. There's going to be rumors. There's going to be conflict. But Father God, that we're on a journey together, unified to walk And our journey and our vision and our dream is to see you glorified and you alone. For it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.